Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Some passages of this story are narrated by voice actors, and as a courtesy, a handful of names have been changed. This is Episode 4, Chapters 14 through 19. For photos, videos, and more information, visit dakotaspotlight.com. Chapter 14, Sunland The neighborhood of Sunland to Yunga in California lies in a region of Los Angeles known as the San Fernando Valley. It sleeps somewhat quietly in the shadows of a range named the San Gabriel Mountains. Living at the base of a mountain range is different than growing up on the flat plains of the prairie where your clear horizon opens up to you like an endless future. In places like Tiyunga, you feel less the observer and more the observed. As you move about your life, the persistent presence of something hovering above is a pesky reminder that there is possibly always something larger than yourself out there, following you, watching your every move like a school principal, a police detective, or maybe a god. On Monday evening, July 12th, a blue over white 1968 Chevrolet with one brand new tire pulled into Tayunga. David Feist sat at the wheel, threading the sedan through the streets of his old stomping grounds. He and his siblings had gone to high school here when they lived on Pinewood Avenue. In fact, his sister still lived in the area, and that's exactly where they were headed. Whatever welcoming these three young men expected at her house, they were in for a big surprise when, on their arrival, the Feist sister told them immediately, The FBI is looking for you. The men bolted and raced the Chevrolet to a motel parking lot, on the corner of Foothill Boulevard and Commerce Avenue. Their plan? To lay low until nightfall, then drive straight to Canada. David Feist went into the motel office to pay for a room. Butch Feist and Gregory Huber were suddenly not so interested in shooting off bottle rockets and attracting attention. The heat was coming down on them, and they must have felt it. They slipped quickly inside their motel room, pulled the shades, and waited for darkness. Other than the ever-watchful San Gabriel Mountains, nobody else knew exactly where they were. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Chapter 15. The House on 3rd Street In 1956, Wade's wife, Leah, got cancer. She passed away on November 16, 
at the age of 44, leaving Wade to alone care for nine-year-old Nancy and Wade's nephew, Don. A month later, on that first Christmas without Leia at his side, Wade Zick sent out a Christmas letter to friends. He began with a quote from the Bible. Quote, This is the day the Lord hath made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Unquote. Psalms 118. Wade wrote the following to his friends. Dear friends, once again we are privileged to commemorate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by observing Christmas. No doubt our thoughts, as well as yours, will be of fond memories we have had of Christmases in the past. May they ever remain so. Our Christmas will be different, but we shall always remember that the gladness of Christmas is hope, the spirit of Christmas is peace, and the heart of Christmas is love. The other day, a dear friend of ours sent us a copy of a poem written by Aline Kilmer the year both her husband and daughter passed away. It too has brought comfort to us. Wade included this poem. The title of the poem is Christmas, and the following is the poem itself read by Wade's great-granddaughter, Megan Walt. And shall you have a tree, they say, now one is dead and one away? Oh, I shall have a Christmas tree, brighter than ever it shall be, dressed out with colored lights to make the room all glorious for your sake. And under the tree a child shall sleep, near shepherds watching their wooden sheep. Threads of silver and nets of gold, scarlet bubbles the tree shall hold, and little glass bells that tinkle clear. I shall trim it alone, but feel you near. And when Christmas Day is almost done, when they all grow sleepy one by one, when Kenton's books have all been read, when Deborah's climbing the stairs to bed, I shall sit alone by the fire and see visions of you come close to me. For the dead and the absent always stay with the ones they love on Christmas Day. Wade signed off the letter with the following. May he who in a manger lay bring peace and joy on Christmas Day, and may his blessing stay with you from day to day the whole year through. Lovingly, Nancy, Donald, and Wade. Meanwhile, and elsewhere, Ellen Thompson, or Ellen Mammel, as she was now named, was sad and confused herself at the time. Her husband John had had an affair and left her. They divorced, and for the first time in a long time, Ellen found herself wondering what awaited her in her future. As it turned out, her future would be with Wade Zick. It is believed that Wade and Ellen met in Fargo, North Dakota, where he often traveled to visit his sister, Dorothy. Regardless of how they met, these four people, Ellen, Wade, Nancy, and Donald, they joined together to form a new family. They came as they were, complete with scars and scrapes and bruises on their hearts. They had seen some real bad weather, but blue skies were on their horizon now. They could all see it, maybe not always at the same time at first, but sure enough, one day it came, like a warm blanket of sunshine. Happiness returned to the little house on 3rd Street. Chapter 16. Sour Cream and Salsa the common housefly is detested, regarded as a filthy creature, and yet a lot of people claim they would like to be a fly on the wall, covertly watching and listening to the actions of others. 
Myself, I'd prefer to be a bee, not as quiet as a fly, but with three times the lifespan and the ability to travel greater distances. Imagine for a moment you are a bee buzzing around a garbage bin. What garbage bin? Well, the one outside of a Taco Bell restaurant in downtown Redding, California, 550 miles north of Tiunga, California. It's a hot day on Tuesday, July 13, 1976, and whatever essence lured you to the bin in the first place has turned out to be a disappointing stink of rancid sour cream and splattered salsa. You notice three mute humans walking towards the door to the restaurant. First, a sharp-nosed blonde wearing dark bell-bottom pants and a t-shirt striped in the colors of plum, mustard, and sunflower. Then, a smaller and thinner one, vacant and withdrawn. And then a third man wearing the shirt of a hornet with wide stripes of black and yellow. They lumber into the restaurant, and when they return outside, you catch the bouquet of something sweet from their big plastic cups. You take flight like a modern-day drone and shadow the trio as they walk first out of the parking lot and then along Market Street with Mount Shasta on their horizon. The human smell of sweat and flight and fatigue, but whatever they have in those big plastic cups has you hooked. When they scurry across Market Street to the parking lot of the Stardust Motel, you follow them in hopeful pursuit. You buzz along behind until they slip into their motel room and slam the door on you. Before they can shut the drapes, you witness the small one turn on the TV and collapse onto a bed with his Taco Bell treasure. Meanwhile, back in North Dakota, the residents of Zealand were organizing the funeral. Women and men cooked food in kitchens and shook their heads silently, still in disbelief. At Zion Lutheran Church, farmers installed outdoor loudspeakers, while truckloads of chairs and benches and more chairs and even more benches were unloaded and lined up outside of the church. And that day, the Bismarck Tribune newspaper published an article with the headline, Suspects in Area Murder Case Surprise Some. It says that Greg Huber was born and raised just outside of Zealand. What the article does not say is that his family were members of Zion Lutheran Church. In fact, it is said that Ellen Zick was his Sunday school teacher when he was a little kid, although I was not able to confirm this for certain. The article states, Relatives of the two brothers say the Feist boys were no different than other boys their age when they lived in Selby, South Dakota, as kids. Born to Sebastian Sr. and Gladys Feist, the boys were two of seven children. A car accident took the life of their father, Sebastian Sr., in 1963. Mrs. Feist remarried, and the family moved to Tiunga, California. The previous year, 1975, Butch's mother and stepfather brought Butch to Zealand from California to live with his uncle Alex and his grandmother, Katie Feist. David Feist had been in the Army, stationed in Germany. He came to the Zealand area just a few months earlier. He worked in Selby, South Dakota for a while and lived in a hotel there. Butch Feist attended Zealand High School for about 15 days but was expelled. It was there at Zealand High School that Butch Feist became friends with Greg Huber. The article quotes a teacher from Zealand School when describing Butch. He was a big talker, talking about this and that, but it was all talk. He didn't have any direction, although he didn't seem to be that bad of a kid. He just didn't seem to have anyone to give him the right push. 
Greg Huber, the article explains, became apathetic his senior year in high school, and he missed a lot of classes. The school officials tried to help him when he got behind in his studies. They even tried to arrange correspondence courses for him with North Dakota State University. In March, Greg dropped out and joined the Navy. He failed basic training and returned home. The article quotes a Navy recruiter. My personal opinion is that he was a real fine young man. I spent a night with him in Ellendale during a snowstorm, and he was always a gentleman and talked with respect. The Navy recruiter also said that he thought the reason Greg Huber failed basic training in the Navy was because he was homesick. Quote, I think he was real close to his mother, unquote. Chapter 17, Standing Room Only The funeral took place on Wednesday. It's natural to wonder what the loved ones and families of the Zicks were going through that day. Wade's daughter Nancy Wald and her family were there, of course, but we shouldn't forget that Ellen Zick had a son named Jerry from her first marriage. Jerry was married and had three kids of his own at the time, Ellen's grandkids. I spoke with his daughter, Ellen's granddaughter, Kim Mammel, who remembers the family getting the bad news. I just had such a deep love for her. I remember um, the gifts that she gave me. I held on to, I have this little five-year diary that she gave me. I still have it. Um, A little necklace with a rose on it. It was really strange because I I heard this kind of commotion in the kitchen and my instincts just kicked in that something was wrong. And my brother's room was next to mine and we both opened our doors and got out and went to the kitchen at the exact same time. I'll never forget that just because the timing was just like he knew something was wrong too. And I'd never seen my dad cry before. And it was more of um, shrieking, I guess, you know, because it was just so shocking. And my mom grabbed Craig and hugged him. And my dad grabbed me and hugged me. And, you know, they both told us that um, Grandma Zick and Wade had been murdered. And I, I... I couldn't even process it at the time. I just, I went, I remember going back to my bedroom and sitting on my bed and watching cartoons. Um, And my mom came in and asked if it was okay. And I just said, yeah. And I'm staring at the TV, you know, just like a blank stare on my face, I guess, for some time. So we packed up our bags and went to Zealand. I remember walking through their house um, and it being so empty. It was just, it was such a strange feeling. I could just feel that they weren't there. They're like, I could almost feel their energy was just gone and it wasn't right. It was very uncomfortable and the funeral was overwhelming. I remember sitting in the the front pew where the family sits and looking at the caskets. And it's the first funeral I had ever gone to. And it was a closed, they closed the caskets due to the nature of 
the killings. Um, and I just, I think I was still in shock or something because I wanted to go up and open that casket so bad. I can't even tell you how close I came to running up there and causing a disruption because I just thought maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a chance the doctors got it wrong. For Nancy Wald, the murder of Ellen Zick marked the third mother taken away from her. First, her birth mother gave her up for adoption. Then her adoptive mother, Leah, died from cancer. And now Ellen. Now this. But Nancy was not just a daughter. She was also a mother of two kids, Mike and Robin. Robin was only six years old, but she does have memories of her grandparents. I remember riding our bikes down there. Um, I believe there was a, a parade that year down there in Zealand uh, over the 4th of July weekend, or we were down for that. I remember my grandfather was in it. My grandmother was with the picture shows, dressed to a tee, um, jewelry. Um, Grandma always had a dress on, an apron. She always had homemade bread made when we came down. When we stayed there, that when we were there, that's where we stayed. I mean, there's photos of us at, sitting in his chair at the bank. We loved going to the bank. He was the sweet grandpa. I asked Robin if she had any idea of how her mother felt or handled the murder of her parents. Yeah, I think she, like I said, I think she felt cheated out of years with her parents. Cheated out of years that we could have had with our grandparents. And, you know, in life, old age happens, illnesses happen, but this didn't have to happen. When it came time for the funeral, Nancy decided she didn't want her kids to have to sit through that. Robin Wald and her brother Mike stayed at their uncle's just across the street from the church. My sister and I didn't go to the funeral. We, uh, we, we stayed back. We had some friends take care of us, but... You know, got to take a peek every once in a while and, and seeing all the people outside. And, and again, understood but didn't understand the, the magnitude. And this is their father, Don Walt, again. That, and that was kind of a Nancy decision. She, I asked her, we can, we can do this. We, no, no, that's bad enough. We have to sit through it. So, um, but coming out, KFYR had their cameras set up in the middle of the intersection across from the church and I think that's the first time I really realized that how, how big a thing this really is you know up to that point I I really felt that you know our hearts were torn out but it, it was being limited to our little family here but it quickly expanded to a big thing they put speakers outside there were people outside we could see that because we were right across the street um, and the Borkies kept us at my uncle's house and then from there, excuse me, um, we went to the cemetery. Zealand's main street was deserted this afternoon. What few businesses operate in this town of 300 were closed. Townspeople were attending the funeral of Wade and Ellen Zick. A crowd of 700, by one count, packed into the Zion Lutheran Church. There wasn't room for all. And many people had to sit and stand outside the church and listen to a loudspeaker. 
The Reverend Robert Weimer eulogized the Zix, saying things happen which we do not understand, and that was true of the dramatic events in Zealand over the weekend. He said, we cannot understand why the Zix were taken, but what is important, they had dedicated their lives to God. The Zix were active in church affairs. The pastor said they now stand face to face with their Lord. Zealand residents are grief-stricken at losing the Zix. More than that, they are shocked and frightened by the manner in which the ugly realities of big city life and death have brutally intruded on their placid rural existence. Today's funeral served as a catharsis for some of that grief, and time will diminish it further. But the grim reality of what happened to the Zix will not be forgotten. Dennis Newman reporting from Zealand. Chapter 18, Pink Slip Remember the movie Stand By Me with its list of cast members? River Phoenix, Kiefer Sutherland, Richard Dreyfus, John Cusack, the list goes on. It's the story of four boys in a small town in 1959, Oregon, who go on a hike to find the dead body of another boy. There's a scene where the boys walk across a railroad bridge when suddenly a train comes and they have to race to safety to the other side. Parts of that movie, specifically the scenes along the railroad tracks, were filmed in Oregon, just east of a town named Cottage Grove. Cottage Grove is a beautiful place situated someplace between the Taco Bell restaurant in Redding, California, and the freedom of the Canadian border. With about 6,000 people, it rests along Interstate 5, flanked by thick woods and beautiful rolling hills. In Cottage Grove on the evening of Wednesday, July 14, 1976, 58-year-old Philip Lake picked up the phone and called the police to report an abandoned vehicle with North Dakota license plates. Mr. Lake lived southeast of town along Mosby Creek Road. He passed away a few years ago, but his son Jerry, who was home that summer from college, remembers the abandoned car. Well, the area here is uh, about two miles out of town, and it's kind of hilly country in the in the area. I mean, there's hills around, and I believe it was right next to the driveway where they left it. Uh, you, as to your knowledge, it was not concealed, like in shrubbery or anything. No, uh, I think it was just parked along the driveway, and it was left on a 105-acre farm. Uh, Forty acres of that is standing timber. And it has a creek running through the, the flat ground. It sounds to me like they could have hidden it better, the car. Uh, they could have left it over by, there's a way station right there, and they could have just parked it there, and nobody would have noticed it for a week. People go to the, over there and park, and they leave things, and and that's where they leave their rigs when they want to share rides. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have known it for oh, overnight or two days or something like that. Oregon State Police Officer Bob Clifton showed up, and when he discovered that there was an APB out on the car, the area was searched for clues and photos taken. Officer Clifton reasoned logically that the fugitives would have needed a car to move on. 
There were no recent reports of stolen cars in the area, and so he sent another trooper and a recruit to visit nearby car dealerships. Maybe the fugitives had purchased a new car in Cottage Grove, he reasoned. It turned out that they had bought one just five hours earlier. An automobile salesman named Paul Berry was working at Betts Chevrolet in Cottage Grove. I only know his name was Paul Berry because I made an open records request to the Oregon State Police. Incredibly, they still had some documents. Betts Chevrolet dealership stood about a half a mile north of where Mr. Lake found the abandoned car. The dealership is still there today under a different name, Brad's Cottage Grove Chevrolet. So, while much of south-central North Dakota was attending Wade and Ellen's funeral at Zion Lutheran Church, automobile salesman Paul Berry watched as three men walked into the dealership. I thought I'd try to find Paul Berry if he was still around. I figured it was a long shot since it was a long time ago, and all I had to go on was a name. I'm almost 89 years old. I haven't been in Cottage Grove, honestly, in probably 30 years. I don't know how long ago that was. The thing that I recall is the guy you're talking about at that time came in. He said he wanted to buy a car. He had cash. After the fact, some people gave Paul Berry a hard time. Didn't he think that it was suspicious that the men paid him in cash? No, he didn't. Cottage Grove was near lumber country, and loggers, as they were called, would often come out of the lumber yards and forests with cash, ready to buy a car. It wasn't uncommon at all. But they still had to deal with the finance manager because he did all the paperwork and took the money. And of course the FBI showed up and asked Paul some questions, too. Whoever he was. That was the only thing he really questioned me on was, you have any idea where they were heading? I said, they said they were going to Canada, which is exactly what they said. The Oregon State Police got the license plate and VIN number from Betts Chevrolet and blasted the info across the wires. They alerted the highway patrol in Oregon and Washington, and they notified the authorities at the Canadian border. And then they just waited for the trio to turn up again. David Feist pointed their new $900 1969 Pontiac Catalina towards Canada and hit the gas. As they turned out the last few hundred miles to the border, it's tempting to wonder what was going on in their minds. Was Gregory Huber thinking of his mother and his family? Was David Feist thinking of his girlfriend in Selby, South Dakota? As the landscape of the Pacific Northwest rolled by them, did they think they were going to get away? And if so, what would they do in Canada? A mile marker, mile marker, count them up, son Between what once was and what's begun A mile marker, mile marker, count them up, kid between what we should do and what we did. Three suspects in the murders of a Zealand North Dakota banker and his wife were captured early today trying to cross the U.S.-Canadian border at Blaine, Washington. They were being held in the Whatcom County Jail at Bellingham, Washington, pending a hearing before U.S. magistrate on returning them to North Dakota, FBI agents said. They were sought in connection with the slayings of Wade Zick, 66, and his wife Ellen, 65, last weekend. The Zicks were buried Wednesday. 
U.S. Border Patrol agents and authorities in the Northwest had been alerted that the three might try to cross the border, and the patrol was checking every car that came through. Ah, Julianne, Julianne, how do you tell Between what you give and what you sell And now, ah, in a sense, in a sense, where did you go You're off learning things you shouldn't know And the night of the fire, when I got home when I came through the door, you said, hold me like you never will again. Like you Chapter 19. Two Brothers, One Friend. In North Dakota, anger and outrage awaited the three fugitives. The Zik murders had left people frustrated and irate. In one of Zeeland's neighboring towns, Linton, North Dakota, one shocked resident sent a letter to the editor to the newspaper. It opened like this. Dear Editor, About the couple in Zeeland who were murdered, is this the kind of life we are to lead? For robbers to go out and kill others like rabbits on the run? Innocent people? Is this the kind of life we in North Dakota are to have? Is our country a land of freedom? To the people of Zealand, friends and family of the murdered couple, don't you think we should do something about this to protect the innocent? Or will there be another, a next one? In another letter, a resident argued that the three young men should be put to death. If capital punishment is not provided in retribution for such crimes, then we can lay every repetition of such crime to the charge of an irresponsible body of lawmakers. We should refuse to vote for any candidate who refuses to take a positive stand on capital punishment. As if the senseless murders of Wade and Ellen was not enough fuel for North Dakota's outrage, during this interim, while impatiently waiting for the boys to be returned to North Dakota so that justice could be served, something else, something shocking, was brewing at a national level and tossing even more gasoline on Zeeland's anger. If Lorraine Reiner or Whitey or Francis Streifel happened to pick up the newspaper just five days after the murders, they could first read about the two Feist brothers and their Huber accomplice. They could read how the boys were being brought back to North Dakota in cars by federal marshals. But then they could also read about two other young brothers and their accomplice who had committed the biggest kidnapping crime in California's history. At the present time, we know that there are 27 people missing since about uh, uh, 4.15 yesterday afternoon. And it's our job and the job of the entire law enforcement community here in uh, Chowchilla uh, to find these youngsters and the bus driver and to make sure we take the responsible people into custody for uh, uh, this particular crime. Any political act, you think? On that Thursday afternoon, one day after Wade and Ellen's funeral, 12 hours after the suspects were apprehended at the border, Three young men in Chowchilla, California, two brothers and a friend, stopped the school bus in broad daylight and kidnapped 26 school children and the bus driver. And then, for the next 48 hours or so, 
the nation held its breath until finally the kids resurfaced safe and sound, literally from a buried truck trailer in Livermore, California. Just like in Zealand, there were three men involved, two brothers and one friend. In both cases, as you shall see in the Zealand case, all three men eventually pleaded guilty. In both cases, one of the three convicted men was released from prison years ago. In Chowchilla, a second was released fairly recently, and in our Zealand case, Butch Feist will likely be out of prison soon, possibly even before I can release this podcast. In my mind, I can picture Francis Streifel, or Lorraine Reiner, or Violet Reedy, or any other person who knew the Zicks. I can see them as they read these newspaper articles that weekend, just one week after the murders. I imagine them putting the paper down on their lap, and then, while looking out of the window, thinking, what is this world coming to? This concludes part one of this story. Now that we've learned what happened, in part two, episodes five, six, and seven, we're going to do some exploring. We're going to learn quite a bit about David and Butch Feist and Gregory Huber. We will hear from people who knew them as kids, and we'll hear what people in Zealand and elsewhere remember about them. I will also tell you about my correspondence with one of these men. I asked him if he could tell us why the Zicks had to be murdered. We are also going to get to know some of Wade and Ellen's family members a little better, and we will accompany some of them as they embark on a journey back to Zealand in search of precious memories, friends of the Zicks, and also the gravel pit where Wade and Ellen lost their lives. Here is a taste of part two, episodes five, six, and seven. The old lady came downstairs to get a drink of water, and Greg knocked on the door and told her they ran out of gas and they wanted to use the phone. A lot of people believed strongly that they, these kids should have gotten the death penalty. Uh, she said, I seen the two vice boys come out of the house. We're supposed to live our lives forgiving people. But that's one I can't pull off. I don't know. We were out partying, and I was just coming home from a party. He was this quiet kid that hardly ever talked. The, the first has to be for me was, was going to the bank. Forgive me, because this chokes me up a little bit. And he was just, he just, she was afraid of him, just the way he acted. Dakota Spotlight is produced solely by myself at Everything Midwestern LLC in the state of North Dakota. And I'm going far away. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks, performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday School children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wadezik's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota. And I'm bound for North Dakota to 
where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I wanna take you with me Cause I like your kind around I'm sleeping in my car With the radio on and the windows down And I'm up before the dawn Before this heartache gets the best of me I'm gone and moving on From that city of the lost Over divine Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.